upgraded to iOS 10 and regret it immensely. Because everything's buggy? It's really bad. It's so you got to wait until at least like beta 3 before you install it. But I really wanted uh, the new watch OS. Is that cool? It is. It actually makes the watch usable. Like you can use apps. So I could, I got an Uber and actually could just look at my wrist and see like, oh, four minutes away. Oh, two minutes away. So does everything load much faster? A lot faster. Yeah. Does it improve the battery life? It's the same as far as I've seen. Mm. I charge my stuff religiously, so it's hard for me to know until maybe the next time I travel. My partner's watch, she, her battery dies like every day at the end of the day. Really? Yeah. I, I get like almost two days. Do you have a 42 or a 38 millimeter? 42. She was a 38 and she was wondering if the battery is smaller because the entire thing is smaller. Could be. Because mine gets the end of the day, even with like an hour workout and I still have like 40% battery, but hers is always dead even if she doesn't work out. What does workout have to do with it? Well, workout runs the uh, heart rate monitor. Oh. So it shines that light and uses more battery. Hmm. So yeah, t- disabling the heart rate monitor will increase the battery life, I've heard. Yeah, I take my watch off while I work out. I actually take my watch off a lot. I wear it while I work out and then I get notifications. So I like pause my workout and look at my wrist to figure out what's going on in the world. <laughs> That's only when I go work out during like work hours. One of my coworkers mentions me on Slack and then I have to sometimes attend to it. So what's new with you, Pam? I have a job. What? Like a That's job job? New. Yeah, no. like a jobby job. Yeah. But you were not going to do It kind of just happened. Well, right, right company. yeah, it was kind of like I had my list of things that I wanted and they they filled all those things. And so I said, yes. I don't know. I, it's, I was, I'm anti-job, but then I'm also reasonable. <laughs> So that's kind of a thing. Do you want to talk about what the job is? Yeah. Um, I guess it's like as, I'm trying to warm up to how I talk about it because I'm surprised that I got a job. <laughs> but um, so I, it's, it's this tiny startup called IO Pipe. Uh, and they so they're in this space. Basically, it's like kind of like the industry space I would describe as being near AWS Lambda and function as a service uh, kind of stuff. Serverless kind of things. Um, but it's a uh, there's an SDK and system that lets you compose serverless functions together is what they're up to. Um, it's pretty interesting. There's a lot to work on, uh, and they uh, they're actually starting an accelerator soon. So that sounded interesting to me. And I'm first hire, so that'll be interesting. I've just I've never done that before. So it's like, well, I had all these things that sounded really interesting, and then I had my you know various. Uh, things about me like, oh, by the way, I don't hang out in this country during winter. Uh, that has to be cool. <laughs> um, so when they were like, yeah, it sounds cool. Uh, so yeah, so that happened. Um, this is actually my first week and it's, it's going really well so far. So pretty That sounds super it. cool. Is uh, Do they run on top of Lambda or are they a Lambda competitor? Oh, no, no. So it's this is complementary products. Ah, uh, okay. So, so you would use IOPipe functions uh, or use the, the IOPipe SDK library stuff uh, with any number of function-as-a-service providers like uh, AWS Lambda. Um, I think WebTask from Autho uh, is is in the mix, probably Azure. Like A bunch of people have various things like AWS Lambda, and you could use it on any of them. So, and AWS Lambda for anyone is uh, the on-demand compute platform. So, instead of running a server, you send and you upload a function to one of these on-demand platforms, and when you send an event, that direction 
uh, it, you know, through some triggering mechanism you've set up, it runs a function. And so instead of getting billed for running a server, you get billed for just running the function. So it can end up being really cheap and also really scalable rather than running a bunch of infrastructure. So people are, are getting really into this. Can you provide a use case? Like, I don't understand why I want a layer on top of uh, AWS Lambda. Mm. So you mean like what the IO pipe thing does? Yeah. Sure. So especially really, I think the thing that makes it interesting is composability. So there's, there is and will be actually a library of functions. So you can say, I want to get this URL and then I want to pass its data to this thing and then I want it to do this. And you can compose all these things together. So it's actually also bringing in kind of Ramda-esque stuff um, is the idea. You would actually probably be, be into it. Didn't you just give a talk on Ramda? Um, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Just lightning talk. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm still trying to figure it out as <laughs> uh, one of the things I find interesting about it. Uh, and also, you know, that'll also be a challenge of communicating this so that developers understand it so it's actually useful. But it definitely falls into, like, if you want to do, like, AWS Lambda stuff, but you also then want to compose these things together and do more functional programming type things, then uh, that's the idea. What technologies are you working in? Mostly, pretty much just Node.js, uh, which is nice to just get back to my JavaScript skills. And then there is some stuff that... I guess I haven't really had to touch it, but there's a, a bunch of the infrastructure that runs in behind the scenes is all interesting and newish to me. Like, um, I mean, I've used Docker, but we're also like using Kubernetes. And so I get to figure out what the heck that is. So that'll be fun. Do you know what Kubernetes is, Justin? I do. How would you describe it? Uh, Kubernetes is a container scheduler. Very similar to HashiCorp Nomad. <laughs> Right, because Kubernetes is a Google thing, right? Uh, yes. I don't think it is Google as as much as it is... Uh, there's that other company that I'm blanking on the name of right now. CoreOS? I don't know. There's, there's a whole lot of container things out there. But yeah, Kubernetes is a... Uh, you write these files that describe what your application workload looks like, and then you give them to Kubernetes and it spins up the containers on your infrastructure and allows you to do cool things like rolling deploys. And uh, it's essentially like the next evolution of like infrastructure as code applied to containers. Nomad is very similar, uh, but Nomad does not require your workload to be containerized. Hmm. Okay. So, well, actually there's, there, you tweeted this thing uh, a couple of days ago that I, <laughs> I want to ask you about. You said dev people don't want to do ops stuff and ops people don't want to do dev stuff. So DevOps people don't want to do anything. You had it in quotes. So like, did you read it or hear it? Or are you somebody, quoting yourself? Somebody, no, I'm not quoting myself. Somebody else said it. I didn't do the OH because I don't, I don't know. It was overheard. You don't, you don't Twitter that way? Yeah, it was just, it was just funny. There was not, not that much to read into it. It was just funny. <laughs> somebody said it and I thought it was funny. So I tweeted it. Do you think you're a DevOps person now? Uh, I'm most, I mean, I've always been, I'm always a application developer first, uh, but I've always been passionate about automation. So DevOps is pretty natural, pretty natural fit. Uh, and I do think the infrastructure as code and, you know, operations and developers working closely is very, very important. Um, so I don't, I don't know how to answer that. Am I a DevOps? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. No, I, I, yeah, I, I mostly work on application code. I, I build applications. And I like to have them deployed in a very nice and automated fashion. And that, I guess that makes me a DevOps too. 
I don't think DevOps is really a person, though. It's a, it's a set of ideals. Do you, have you heard of no-ops? No-ops? Is, mm-hmm. that, uh, is that actually just DevOps? I don't know. It's act- someone was telling me that now this is a new thing to, to you know, to do about is that you don't want to have uh it just it is essentially like you don't you want to automate everything so you don't worry about it and don't have a team that that is really that is really nice and you could just like use heroku and whatever else is already off the shelf um but at some scale i feel like you actually do need to pay attention to performance and logging and error and uh capturing errors and you could do all that as a developer but you're really just that is you're kind of doing that is operations work it's not no ops it's your developers are doing ops stuff which is then devops devops (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's kind of what i thought too it was someone just asked me about this recently and i thought it sounded weird I think yeah. it's, I really think an argument of like, but what if you just don't have to do anything is pretty much not true. Kind of like how the cloud is always someone else's computer. Like there is no cloud. Like, <laughs> like there is, but there's not because ultimately like there's still machines running somewhere in some data center. Like it doesn't mean it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Like there's no magic. such thing as things that come out of nowhere. It's serverless. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like I'm aware of this as I am learning all about that stuff, um, and especially Serv- since like the AWS Lambda uh, documentation is like kind of garbage. Um, Ser- serverless is really intriguing to me. Um, I think I, I like that uh, IO Pipe is is working on this problem, and it seems like it seems like it's similar to the serverless platform, right? Yeah, I think I think this is a well serverless is a platform that's specifically AWS Lambda only. Oh, okay. So, so this is like multi provider. Yeah. So I don't know if it I don't know if I, serverless, which is a company would that like anchored really well with their brand name. Good job, y'all. <laughs> um, because apparently they used to be called Jaws. Jaws. Um, just AWS. Like, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think that's literally what it was. Um, so. But yeah, I don't know if IOPipe would be considered a competitor to them or not. Um, so yeah, I, I I tried writing for something something very small in AWS Lambda, uh, and I got it working using the. AWS How did you L- write it? Did you did you use the code editor at in Lambda? No. So I <laughs> I started with a sample in that code editor, and then I right. was screaming like I just want to use Vim. Like what is this craziness? Yes. Uh, <laughs> so then I wrote it in yes. Python and wrote tests locally in Python. And huh. that that involved having to learn like exactly what um, the Python runtime on Lambda was handing to the function, which is like the context and something else, maybe the payload. It's pretty simple. It's event yeah. context callback. That's it. Okay. And callback's optional, honestly. Okay. I think in I think in Python it's only two two. I don't think there's a callback. I think oh, you just, that's I think true. You just that respond. would be a JavaScripty thing. I think yeah. you just respond with a certain response. But it's it seemed like both were just uh, maps or or dictionaries or whatever they are in Python hashes. Um, <laughs> List so yeah, and dicks. Yeah, and it was dictionaries. Yeah, it was. Um, it was pretty simple to write that that function because the function I was writing was very very tiny and it it was a uh, it was a proxy. So you you call this with a post request and a URL and it it forwards that post to another URL. Um, and I got it working. I got I got the code which and that other URL executes that function. Yeah. 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 So I, I got this working locally. Uh, I put it on. So so to upload something to AWS Lambda, you need to z- zip it. You need to zip all your application code together, which kind of was nice because I had a requirement for the uh, request Python package. So I had to essentially vendor that into the zip file and upload that too. 
Uh, that was not a problem. Um, building that zip file in an automated way could be a problem if you don't have existing CI set up for your application. Um, so anyway, I, I have this code. I need to zip it. I need to upload it to, to Lambda or provide an, uh, a location for Lambda to download it from S3 bucket, which I guess you could also automate that. Um, so I ended up doing yeah. all that with Travis and... Um, so you did all this automation work yourself? Yeah, that's, exactly. That's kind of the thing I'm I, like, as I'm kind of like letting you tell this because I think that this is also one of the things that everyone's figuring out right now is making it easy to deploy these things. Yeah, so, so, my, yeah, so, my so there, issue there's was, some like gulp files floating around and other various tools. Nice. Yes, my issue was testing and then packaging and then actually getting it to run on Lambda was very easy using the UI. But um, so I wanted to automate this with Terraform because at HashiCorp, all their infrastructure is created with Terraform. And that's a really good thing because any developer can look at any uh, Terraform file, see what is currently uh, created and deployed. They can edit that file and then Terraform will safely change that. And there's a record of what was changed and by who and why and when. Um, so using the UI to create a Lambda like actual, I forget what the other, uh, AWS API gateway. So that mm -hmm. is how you connect an HTTP endpoint into Lambda, into your Lambda function. So creating that in the UI was pretty straightforward, and there was there were links in the Lambda UI to create the HTTP function, and then or the API gateway, and then in the API gateway there were links back to the Lambda thing. But clicking these few buttons actually created uh, like I don't know eight to ten different uh, resources on on AWS. E. So and there there's a there are. I forget the exact terms. There's like uh, something to do with the request path for the API gateway. You create the API gateway itself, the request path. There's a model, which I believe is like the RESTful endpoint. There are responses um, and some other policy to link the, the thing to the Lambda function. So anyway, that seemed pretty easy to do from the UI, but pretty hard to automate from an API standpoint. Um, I need to revisit it because somebody, somebody sent me some documentation on how to do it with, with Terraform. So I need to try that again. Somebody also suggested using Swagger, um, which was another learning curve for me, uh, trying to figure out how to like make a Swagger definition and actually have it do the thing I wanted and have it work with Lambda. Um, and it seemed like it was very easy to get a lot of that stuff wrong. Like it'd be very easy to mess up there the permission. There were a lot permission. of steps. <laughs> yeah, and, and, yeah, it seems like it'd be very easy to like accidentally give the world right permission to an API, you know? Mm, yeah, that actually, I, I, I've been kind of reading and seeing about how the, because you have to give execution permissions to certain things, and you do that with the AWS uh, identity profiles, and so you have to be vaguely careful about, like, what you give access to that, because then someone could theoretically use that profile somehow to access other resources you have, depending on what access you gave it. Like, Interesting. it seems like there's like this, like, it's very, it, it's not difficult to do this wrong so that you leave like a giant permissions exploit. Yeah, exactly. And what you give people access to. So I like the idea of Lambda, but like learning all these different things and making sure that I do them correctly and being able to explain this to somebody else that's working on a team uh, didn't seem quite there yet. So I'm, I'm curious um, to see like how IOPipe and serverless and these other things actually end up playing out because it seems like you need a framework on top of this to actually make it useful in yeah a, uh, or in just a, even just setting. usable yeah that you don't have to like yeah so it abstracts away some of this stuff yeah yeah and, so and I, and I like the idea of having these uh functions that are 
are there and sitting idle and don't actually use any computing time until they're actually called. So like, like building based on actual function usage sounds really cool. Um, but I think it'll also have some interesting, like, I think it'll have an interesting impact on the way people program too. Cause I think it's, it's that thing of, um, I mean, every so often I wonder about, or, you know, when I hear people who programmed in the eighties and had to care a lot about, you know, making things super efficient and we take for granted a lot. I mean, or at least everyone who writes Python probably does how <laughs> long things take. Like you don't like, you know, computers move fast, so you don't have to care, but it's, you know, when you're getting billed for compute time, if you can make a function faster, it actually matters, which is kind of interesting. I think that that'll have an interesting impact on the way people program for a lot of people who don't really care about that right now. Because you don't really have to. Like, it'll be fine. But, you know, at scale, these things start to matter a lot. There was a Lambda presentation at Philly ETE, and I asked the presenter about what languages were coming next. And they said their two highest priorities were uh, Go and C Sharp. Hmm. Oh, actually, I think... So I would like to have Go support. That'd be very nice for, for HashiCorp especially. Oh, so now that you mentioned that, because there was a tool I wanted to mention that I've been using in doing some of this stuff is um, called Apex, which makes it easy to write and deploy serverless functions. And it actually does support Golang. So... Hmm. I think one of the things it was created to do was also to patch that so that you could deploy Golang if you want. Um, but it was really nice because uh, using this, I really, you know, I'm, you know, I got to actually work with Lambda and then start poking around the interface to find, you know, you got to like go to CloudWatch to get the logs and like figure this out. <laughs> but I didn't have to go through the terrible tutorial process that they have because I just used this tool and uh, it's actually quite nice. Um like it for being as new as it is, I think this dropped in January. Uh, it's pretty nice. Is there any way to debug AWS Lambda? Like, can you get in and set breakpoints, or do you have to do console log debugging, or what's the workflow like? I was doing mm. logging debugging. I don't know if there's a yeah, way to me too. Um, well, function. I mean, so I would say like when when I've been working on a function, I debug it by running it locally. <laughs> like, mm. I'll just run the function. Um, which works because, you know, right. <laughs> I mean, I run into a lot of stuff. I haven't, like, I haven't run into anything where it's different on the server than uh, on, you know, on the host than it is on me because like, I'm literally mm. like uploading a zip file of exactly what I have and it is running that right. Like, and I have yet to find a difference, especially since, you know, I'm defining my node version. I'm, like I'm defining everything. So right. should be the same theoretically. Mm. Yeah, I just always run into problems using services like Heroku or CircleCI where some something just doesn't match and you can't really get in and debug the same way. Yeah. We're cat sitting two cats that are very scared and one just walked over and let me let me pet her, so I'm very excited. Aw. You're on site cat sitting two cats? Like they come to your house? They came to our house, yeah. Aw. Yay cats. <laughs> that was totally on topic. <laughs> cats are like services serverless architectures. Um, sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not. <laughs> they sit idle um, until you need them. They, they sit idly. That is uh, how cats are. So Pammy posted this article about the medium hiring process. 
yeah, so in in our new format where we're having a news section and stuff, uh, I dropped in a bunch of news and slash articles. Uh, and so this was interesting. I don't know if you all have gotten a chance to look at it, but Medium uh, posted, I mean, be not fooled by this is marked as a three-minute read because it then links to a like bunch of other documents that document their entire hiring process. Um like they actually, um, they have like rationale, what we look for in candidates, what we don't look for candidates, and how we grade candidates. Um, and it's interesting. I don't know. I kind of wanted to hear what you all thought of it because I, I, I think it's actually really necessary. You know, if you're, if you are looking for like look when you're looking for jobs, like read this stuff because they basically just like gave you a format, like they gave you a syllabus. Like this is a syllabus. Like if you want to pass their interview then read the syllabus. It's like when you take a class and you, you know, you look and see, you know, that this test takes up 30% of your grade and whatever, and then you know how to prioritize. So read the syllabus and then you'll do well. So I, as I also wonder about people publishing these things, because I mean, people like me <laughs> uh, read these things and like will get the job because we bother to read these things in my humble opinion. But I don't know. What do you all think of it? I really like this line. We are hiring for strength, not lack of weakness. I used to tell people uh, my one interview tip would be just to like speak more. And even, even if you uh, get a question that you may not like be suited to answer, just like pivot and talk about something tangential because people generally, I think, just want to know that you know things, and they're just using tools of asking questions to try to figure out if you know things. And if, you know, your answer is, no, I don't know that, and you stop talking, then it appears that you do not know things. Um, so I really like That's this interesting that you say that, because one of my advice that I give to people is to talk less. <laughs> really? Why, don't, why don't would ramble? you? Why? Don't ramble. So that, especially coaching people, that... But I always coach people to tell stories, too, um, that your answer to something should have a beginning, a middle, and an end, uh, because that's how people listen to things. And then they'll remember right. it because you told them a story. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think your advice also holds that, you know, don't don't treat things as yes or no questions um, is generally a, a good piece of advice. Um, but yeah, because we'll... So the thing about when you get other people to talk is that when you are the interviewee and you get your interviewer to talk, you are, you know, firing some nice signals in their brain that make them feel good. And if they feel good, they're more likely to write you a positive review. Right. Um, basically, like interviewing can be viewed as a like big old pile of social engineering if you want. <laughs> yeah. So you can social engineer interviews pretty easily because they're made of people and people can be socially engineered. Yay. This is what I think about interviews. <laughs> <laughs> Although my favorite interview is still uh, just pairing. Yeah, I, I mean. for a couple hours, which yeah. was a big time sink. Yeah, I mean, that's always so sink, tricky. But. And especially, well, yeah, it's a huge time sink. And then also, like, plenty of people don't pair or they're, like, freaked out by pairing. But that doesn't mean that they won't be fine once they start pairing. So that has its own problems. Right. Yeah, I just think, I think the post is interesting from the, uh, I mean, I, I think it actually is probably extremely useful for people who want to define a hiring process and are like, how do I even, because um, they basically wrote everything out and they even have like creative commons. So you can straight up just copy it and put it in your work manual. Um, but, uh, but yeah, on the candidate side, it does seem like 
thank you for describing how to pass your interview. So then do we want I, I have I have lots of other articles I put in we can talk about them. I don't know how we want to move on to when we want to move on to articles. We need little uh, sound bumpers. <laughs> I mean, you can add, yeah, you can pretend add one. Well, and I thought that we would only bumper between sections, not necessarily articles. Otherwise, that would be a lot. That could be annoying. But uh, in case this, is, I don't know if this is interesting to either of you, but I like Angular two a lot. Uh, it's actually I'm talking at DjangoCon <laughs> about Angular two, and the Angular two release candidate three uh, is out. Uh, the name still gets me. A, f- a friend of mine was like, oh, "I'm using Angular t- two," and I was like, "Oh." Oh, wait, Angular 2. I guess that's okay. You mean like not Angular as well? Yeah, I just hear Angular and, and feel pain. Oh. And then I remember that Angular 2 is better. It is quite is quite a lot better. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty neat. So like the release candidate releases are, are good news because that's, you know, the road to stability and not dealing with a bunch of changes between versions. Um, but so for, so it looks like for release candidate 3, uh, which was... Pretty much um, a couple of days, you know, about six days after release candidate two was released, uh, because it fixed a major performance regression, um, and it looks like this seems like pretty good news. Is the Angular router project ha- uh, has been merged, and the router documentation is available. That sounds really great. Um, and uh, a form cookbook, which is nice. I have lots of form updates, which are really useful because. Yeah, when forms like just work, it's extremely nice in Angular too. When they don't work, I've had to I had to do some like monkey patching type stuff to submitting the form, uh, which was meh. But yeah, so it sounds like they want to include one or two more release candidates over the next month or so, and then there will be Angular 2.0.0 final. So I think we'll actually probably see that by the end of summer, if I were wagering. It's kind of interesting. All right, it sounds like you all aren't interested in that. This one is fun. Uh, this is I, don't, peop- I, I just don't know anything about Angular 2. Like, I, well, I know it's allegedly better, but I don't know anything beyond that. Well, tune in for the future video of my talk, Angular 2 and you, coming to mm. DjangoCon 2016. <laughs> um, it'll be really intro because it's, you know, a Django conference. So you'll, you'll actually probably get something out of it. Um so, like, I am self-promoting, but I actually think that you'd probably like it. And it's only – it's a 25-minute talk, so. Um, but, yeah, so here's another thing that I saw, and I don't really understand if this is a joke or not. Um, this is people for the ethical treatment of reinforcement learners promoting moral <laughs> considerations for algorithms. I saw hmm. this. Um, I think it's a joke, but at the same time, it's written so seriously that it, uh, you know – I'm kind of like, is this actually a philosophical question? But it's like, do we need to care about how we treat algorithms? Like, are there ethical problems with how we treat algorithms? No. So. Wait, can you can you elaborate? <laughs> I don't understand it. I would. I mean, I didn't really understand it either. It seemed ridiculous, but also kind of seemed like somebody was actually very serious when they wrote it. I think the actual thing. So there's an academic paper, and I think it was actually serious because I think it's some you know philosophy person. And the the Vox interview with this person is that uh, the article is this guy thinks killing video game characters is immoral because you're <laughs> killing AIs. So if you kill AIs, is that bad? The the uh, the the gist that I got from skimming it was humans are just algorithms implemented on like a biological substrate or something. Yeah. And by treating any algorithm as less than human is inhumane or some something ridiculous <laughs> like that. Computers are people too, maybe? I don't know. 
Yeah. Meanwhile, Pam's killing serverless containers left and right. Like all the time. Like when the machines rise, we're like totally, totally ruined. I think it might be serious. I really can't tell. <laughs> like I you accidentally it, scale up and you're like, I can't, I can't remove all these dinos. <laughs> <laughs> Who am I to tell them to stop? <laughs> or, like, you know, and this is, is, yeah, it's kind of an interesting idea to think about because I've, you know, met researchers who train AIs and then kill them when they get, you know, weird. <laughs> um, uh, like when you create, cause there's also, you know, this interesting part of AI where you want to, you preferably don't want to be like Microsoft and train an AI in the real world because then they'll immediately turn into a Nazi like that Twitter bot did. Um, I'll make sure I drop a link for that so that people can find that. Um, but yeah, but you create virtual worlds for your for your AI so that you can train them in a safe environment and you can easily, you can also train them, you know, like they don't have a concept of time. So you can train them, you know, with a hundred years worth of data in, you know, like not that long, not a hundred years. So, uh, but then you can also kill them when they, you know, turn evil and want to kill all humans because they're, you know, safely in the virtual world. But yeah, I don't know. That's, it's kind of weird. (laughs) I think it might be serious. Who knows? Um, check it out yourself. <laughs> we did ask if anybody had any questions, and somebody wanted us to talk about code reviews, how long and how thorough they should be. Do you want to jump to the? Are we? Is it the section though? Do you want to jump to the question section? We probably could jump. I to think the so. We only have ten minutes. A few left minutes left. Yeah, we should emails. jump to question sections. <laughs> what about emails? That's our sound buffer. Yeah, that's our, yeah. It's oh. not. We didn't actually get any emails, but. No. But the podcast okay. I listen to that has listener questions at the end just says We don't emails <laughs> We don't have an email. Twitter Twitter mentions. I prefer Twitter. Yeah. Let's keep it that way. So yeah, so code reviews, how long and thorough should they be? Is one of one of Gonzalo's questions. Yeah. The the way that I have been doing uh specifically GitHub pull request reviews at previous positions and also my current team is that first like what what are the steps of a review somebody opens a pull request the author uh somebody else has to give it a thumbs up or lgtm looks good to me we've been using uh the ship emoji ship there you go oh i like this ship i like the rocket wait or is that the is that the squirrel with the hat we we have either so there's ship and there's ship it Mm -hmm. ship it squirrel with the hat i like rocket oh yeah i use rocket too um, so yes, but the important part is that the author opens a pull request, somebody else has to approve it, and then the author is the one to merge and deploy it. Um, and I, I, I know it's kind of jumping ahead, but I think that's really important that the author is the one to merge it. And that, Wait, why is that? Because, um, like ownership and stuff. Yeah, it's ownership. And also I've had multiple situations when, when we didn't do this on other teams where, uh, I open a pull request, somebody else approves it and then merges it. And uh, on one hand, it's ownership because something goes wrong. That person is now stuck dealing with it and not you with the merge. And the other thing is that sometimes I've thought to myself after I've opened the pull request, you know, when I'm taking a Pomodoro break or I'm like showering, you know, shower thoughts. I'm like, oh, I should have done this this way. I need the ability to go back and like change it before it's merged uh, and then get re-reviewed. So anyway, I feel like author merging is, is important. Um, but yeah, on in code reviews, I try to be... I try to be... Um, less pedantic than i have been in the past what do you mean by that uh i am very 
I've written a lot of Ruby over the last five, six years and not a lot of other languages. And I'm very opinionated about how Ruby should look and, and how object-oriented programming works. Um, but sometimes somebody will open something that functionally works, but maybe the syntax isn't like how I would do it um, or some other, you know, bike shedding cosmetic thing. And I've had this problem in the past, not so much recently, but in the past I've had this problem where I can't see what the code does because all I see is the semantic um, syntax issues that I wouldn't have done. Um, we use an emoji for that too. What is that? <clears throat> I used to type like just NBD for no big deal, uh, but we have a yellow heart. No big deal. <laughs> yellow heart. But, yellow heart means yeah. NBD. So that's like, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't do this, but it's okay to merge. Yep. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, tr I try to, as much as I can, actually review the functionality of the code. And if I'm if I get stuck in my brain thinking about something else like syntax or how it's not object-oriented object or, or different programming paradigm, um, I try to think about why I'm feeling that and not just... Um, I saw a tweet about this recently. I forget who said it. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes, but... Essentially, if you're if you're a developer that's reviewing somebody else's code, uh, don't don't always fall back to this is how we do it. This is convention. This is not um, you know semantic Ruby or something else. Like actually give reasons for why why that is, or maybe maybe your your gut feeling isn't actually valid if you can't come up with a reason. Yeah, I also feel I really hate those kinds of comments because. I feel like if that's actually the reason, then you should have already, you know, or you should have something on the backlog to implement a linter. Yeah. And like, if it's actually like a syntax thing that you want to enforce across the board, and it's not just like your feelings. <laughs> yeah. Then, then there should already be a computationally viable method for the, that developer to get that feedback without you causing an interpersonal issue. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And specifically in Ruby, there are things that are, um, for instance, when you're in a an instance method, or in any method, you can use self dot to refer to another method, or you can just refer to the method name by its method name and not not include self dot. And that is purely a. It has some uh, semantic differences with how Ruby executes it, but it's it's mostly a cosmetic difference. Uh, I don't use self dot. Some other people on my team do, and, and past teams. Uh, and I try to ignore that completely. Like I don't. I would never review that and say, hey, don't do that because that's not really worth. Um, debating um but anyway so when i when i review code i try to get a good idea of like what is the goal of this code uh what what bug or feature is this you know fixing or implementing before i actually start like looking at the code uh and then depending on what it is i'll we'll usually try it locally um also i really love when people include screenshots or gifs in the pull request especially for ui changes I, it's very very helpful to like to see that they actually tried it and it's working and then I feel more confident giving a thumbs up. Um, I talked for a while there. Would, would, would you <clears throat> yeah, do? the screenshots are huge. I use just Dropbox, so I can just take a screenshot and just link the uh, Dropbox link right in my pull I do, request. I do the same with Cloud App. Nice. I mean, I try and run it preferably. Like, it's really trivial to... I mean, I'm always surprised how few people do this. Like, I just <laughs> run it. I was just and... going to object to your uh, suggestion that it's trivial. You got to, like, stash what you're doing. got to fetch you gotta I, switch I have, to it you have, have migrations but like you're doing a review like that's part of your job like i think yeah, it but is you could be going trivial. from like a five minute thing to uh we also had it set up that uh, every pull request uh would make a heroku instance so you could just go to it that is really great oh yeah i mean that's off, off like yeah <laughs> 
No, it's like if you don't have that set up, then I've just been surprised at like when you don't have that set up, how people will just like thumbs up things without actually running them and then they break shit and but but it's a, but back to my author merges thing that's that goes back to ownership like you should try things before you open a pull request <laughs> <laughs> you should make sure the code that you should you should write tests but you also should make sure it actually works when you when you go to use it that's um, a big one pro tips the so other I, two things we have mm-hmm. we have a, a prs channel so whenever somebody makes a pr it goes to our channel and then we just uh comment with a different emoji everyone has their own emoji for who's reviewing it and then every week um whoever reviewed the most code we have, there's like another little app that like looks to see every pull request and the size of it and whoever re- reviewed the most lines like gets their choice for where to go to happy hour gets a pizza no <laughs> <laughs> there used to be yeah different different rewards for reviewing the most code that's actually pretty which is a bad metric you can get i you can get a lot awesome. of uh yeah so it's a bad metric, but probably the best metric you can figure out. Yeah, I mean, you got to figure out. I mean, if you're gonna try and incentivize it, I think that's a pretty good incentive. I think I think one of the worst things to do when you're reviewing code is to see something that you know is wrong or bad and not say anything about it. Um, Wait, why would you do that? I, I sometimes you like, don't want to deal with it, or you don't want to fight about it. Yeah, if you want to avoid conflict or or you feel bad, um, like something that you know is like a a code smell or a bad pattern to, to implement and you see it and you think to yourself, like, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to start anything. I don't want to delay the work from going through. I think it just sets a really bad precedent and um, kind of hurts the team in the long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think when I see this question about code reviews, I I actually think about a couple other things is that um, I think about the part that comes before the code reviews that, uh, you know, Think about how big a pull request should be and, you know, like whether like how you do reviews for, you know, small pull requests versus large pull requests might be different. Like whether, you know, you're merging like a giant feature branch that's like a major feature. Um, like do you or like I would prefer to have reviews along the way while you're working on that feature branch. And then like when you do merge the whole thing to master that you do a final review. Um End. But there is a little bit of confidence in there because you already have been reviewing it piece by piece. So what's that quote about about big pull requests? Like no one's ever going to comment on a big pull request. Like yeah, a five line they pull really, request, you'll have like that's, ten. That's the thing on. is, yeah, people oh, yeah. don't want to. Yeah, or it like was, it was a thousand line pull request. You just get a thumbs up. But if it's a ten line pull request, you get yeah, 10 you get like twenty comments. comments. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, I think that's. Uh, an interesting thing to think yeah, about I, too. I think it's good to encourage a culture of opening work in progress pull requests early, so people get an idea of like what you're doing and the direction, so they can comment early before you've put, sunk a whole lot of work into it, and before it gets to that you know thousand line size, you're already in the right direction that your team agrees on. Oh, I also have a a code review peeve I developed over the last year that when you're trying to get a review, like when you're when it's not work in progress anymore. And you're reviewing for merge, people putting comments and then not putting up or down. Like, I don't like that. Wait, not what? Like, if you put a comment, but then you don't oh. put a, I either thumbs up or thumbs down this post, like this right. PR. Sometimes I will say. That's a peeve of mine. Because th- like people are afraid to thumbs down it. And I'm like, don't be afraid to thumbs down it. Like, you have <laughs> to be able to tell me whether this is a big enough deal to you or not. Well, thumbs down to me means... Uh, delete this and throw it all out. <laughs> no, I completely disagree. <laughs> no, because like, so my, unless unless that's what I'm actually trying to say, my expectation is that 
If there are comments and not a thumbs up, the comments need to be addressed, need to be worked on more, and then it will get a thumbs up in the future. Um, thumbs down yeah. to me would be start over. Or, yeah, or, lack or we of, don't want this. Lack of whatever your emoji is for shipping is not is basically thumbs down. I don't like that because there's also a lot of like, I mean, you made it clear. You said that you had things that are like, here's a comment, but like if you don't do it, okay. I just right. had a situation where I got an overwhelming amount of comments that were just like, I would have done this differently. And it's like, okay, that's nice. Are you voting against it or not? Like, Yeah, that's ambiguous. Yeah, it was really, really annoying because I'm like, I'm not like, I don't want to reprogram something just to program it like you would have. Like, that's not my job. Yeah, I think it's important to get rid of ambiguity. So if you're going to comment either like specifically like have some kind of process where there's like NBD or some symbol that like you don't need to address this. Otherwise, you need to address it or we can have a conversation about whether or not it should be addressed. But Yeah, I think that might have been the situation they thought we were in. But then still a lot of the comments were just like, I would have done this differently. Like, okay, thank you for sharing your opinion. That's nice. Like, that's not... The same as saying you sh- like this should be different. Are you all ready for picks? Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have Jervon because um, Gonzalo requested a post rock pick. Do any of you all know what post rock is? I googled like, it, and uh, it seemed like a musical genre that I'm not not familiar with, so I'm not going. It to is a music. It is a musical genre, but like I tried to think of like any band that would possibly be in the genre, and I really couldn't. <laughs> rock isn't dead, so there is no post rock. Uh, <laughs> I think it's post-rock in like the term of postmodern. <laughs> um, I don't know. All right. So I have no post-rock music pick. Um, I will pick a music pick instead, uh, in Jervon's stead for the moment, uh, because, uh, an artist I really like, uh, Lady Hawk. Uh, so I don't pay attention to music that much, really. Not, co- definitely not compared to say Jervon, but, uh, Lady Hawk released a new album this month. And I'm really into it. I get to see her uh, at a concert. So I'm pretty stoked about that. So I'm going to pick Lady Hawk's new album. Uh, and then I'm also going to pick uh, this D3 Garden thing, which is a D3 tutorial that's cool and interactive. And it's almost kind of like I want to compare it to if you played fre- like Flexbox Froggy. Um, it's kind of like that for D3. Uh, oh, that sounds cool. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not like a parallel screen like Flexbox Froggy exactly. But um is a nice step-by-step like set up a canvas and then you know declare an svg and you know stepping you through like how do you d3 even um which is a it's a nice tutorial it's well done those are my picks uh so my pick is a podcast two dope queens it's a comedy podcast and it's uh, jessica williams from the daily show and phoebe robinson and they go up do some uh stand-up comedy and they have other comics so if you want something lighter in your podcast playlist uh two dope queens justin um <laughs> i don't have a pick i'm not gonna try and find one. <laughs> all right justin punts <laughs> cool so show notes are at turing.cool follow us on twitter at turing cool and i'll talk to y'all later bye see ya